Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. How did early American writers think about the spaces around them? We're talking about regions, imagined politically, economically, racially, and figuratively, and the roles these regions played in the formation of American communities, both real and imagined. The book we're talking about today is Mapping Region in Early American Writing. We're going to talk with the editors of this collection about these important mental mappings and cartographies, and how diverse populations imagine themselves, their communities, and their nation as occupying the American landscape. And we bring in Edward Watts, who is professor of English at Michigan State University. Professor Watts, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. We have Carrie Holt, associate professor of English at Utah State University in studio with us. Carrie, thanks for coming in. Great to be here. And we welcome in John Funchen, assistant professor of English and American Studies at the University of Miami. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here as well. Let me start with you, Carrie Holt. Um, this is, um, I think, by way of pushing back against the, the, the main narrative, right, the, the book is. And let me just read something uh, from the, the collection here. Uh, you're quoting in the introduction um, something, I guess, a representative of, of what we usually think of when we talk about uh, mapping narratives. Uh, the long history, historical trajectory that has taken the United States from colonialism to uneven development and global empire. Um, so that long historical trajectory is what we usually think of. Yeah, and uh, what we're trying to do with this collection is sort of chart or map <laughs> a longer history of the role that regions played in um, American writing. So typically, uh, when people talk about regionalism and American literature, they focus on the late 19th century. And there's actually a literary movement that takes place that's called regionalism. Um, and that's where people tend to think about you know, when regions were important or when they play an important role in American literature. And... Uh, we we all, the three of us, all study um, much earlier American literature, and region also played an important role then. And so we felt it was important to sort of start to think about regionalism in that earlier period before um, most people usually um, locate it. And in doing so, to also look at how region was operating really differently uh, before the Civil War than it was operating after the Civil War. After the Civil War, um, region was sort of used as a way to sort of... Um, talk back against industrialization and over losing these, you know, bucolic uh, rural spaces and things are becoming too urban. Um, and region was operating really differently uh, in this earlier period. So we sort of wanted to tell the story of this longer history of the importance of that term in American literature and just talk about what, what region was doing, how it was operating differently before then. Professor Watts, um, I believe you came up with a differentiation between charting and mapping. What What is that difference? Well, it's it's a distinction that we imagine, I think, as, as the book developed. And I think it has a lot to do with imagining how Americans thought about the open spaces on the left side of the map uh, right after the Revolution. And there were fundamentally two responses. And the first was a great anxiety, a worry about how to incorporate all this space, all these different peoples, all these different topographies, and different resources into the, the brand-new nation, which was really just a settlement, pardon me, a series of settlements pretty close to the, uh, the Tidewater area along the Atlantic. And with various events, whether it was the, the Whiskey Rebellion or Aaron Burr's Conspiracy or others, there was a general anxiety that the regions out there might not become part of the United States, but might be parts of other 
sorts of administrative units. And the title of our um, of our introduction, Bordering Establishments, uh, comes from a letter that Jefferson wrote in 1803, right after the Louisiana Purchase, when he imagined that the Atlantic and the Mississippi states might find their best happiness as a nation together, but then again, they might not. And so I think there's this moment right after the Revolution where the possibility is entertained that the country might not spread west of the Appalachians. And so I think there was, for people who wanted it to, there was a real need to discipline that region to make sure that it would become part of the nation. And so we talk about the Northwest Ordinance um, and, and really the four essays chart. Uh, at the opening, after the introduction, the first four essays in the book really talk about processes by which regions which were thought to be divergent or, you know, might not be part of the country. In fact, the final one has to do with Jamaica and entertaining the idea of incorporating Jamaica into the nation at some point. How will the nation extend itself, replicate itself, implicate itself onto these open areas? After the idea of charting as a kind of closed quantitative process for incorporating different regions into the nation, so for kind of setting their future in place and making them always already part of the nation, was one strand. The other strand, then, was mapping, and this was the opening that we really wanted to think about. Uh, and so the last two sections of the book really talk about mapping, which have to do with thinking about Western spaces or even non-Western spaces, even settled areas that have already been settled and colonized, uh, as, as outside of that narrative of whether you want to call it manifest destiny or whatever you want to call it, but as places at odds with or different from uh, the nation as it's, you know, as the West is one, so to speak. And so mapping has to do more with an imaginative construction than it has to do with an administrative, uh, political, or economic space. So... The essays that imagine, say, New Bedford as a as a cosmopolitan place, as, as a kind of global space, remove it in a way from the nation and conceptualize it in a global context. So that's how an area might get mapped. Or the essay that have to do with African Americans in the California gold rush maps California as a place where the racial problems that uses African American writers in California in eighteen fifty to do this Imagine the place. Imagine the place where all this this racial baggage and violence and prejudice that was tearing the nation apart back east might not go. So that's how you map a place. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, John Function, I wondered. Um... I want to bring this for immediately forward. Uh, this maybe should go at the end of the program, but we'll loop back. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about bringing it forward to today. As, as Edward Watts was speaking there, I was thinking we we do this today, don't we? We 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 make mental maps. We we and and sometimes we have to change our paradigm about how we think about places. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think. One of the ways that we're sort of thinking about this in present terms um, and, and, and are ways that I think intersect with some of the things that um, Ned and Carrie are saying is uh, the kind of late 19th century conception of regionalism, which in some sense we're sort of pushing back against as we look at the earlier part of that century. Um, if, 
some some of our sort of notions of what regionalism means today um, kind of correlate with the kind of late 19th century intuitive notions of regionalism. So if you think of a program that will be familiar to public radio listeners like Garrison Keillor's um, right. Lake Wobegon, um, that this notion that the region is this kind of uh, provincial space, a place of, of innocence or quaintness. And what you find actually in the early 19th century, and I think there are ways in which we could certainly sort of challenge our contemporary notions of regionalism too in these terms, but um, some of the things that the essays I think really explore is just how much these localities weren't isolated, that they were connected within an international or transnational network, um, that they were highly contested spaces, and so that when we think about the westward expansion of the nation, um, you know, kind of conventionally, we almost think of it as a foregone conclusion, and you can imagine the kind of maps that typically appear in school, you know, high school textbooks where you sort of see the nation move across the West. Um, but certain essays, like um, Andy Doolin's essay, which explores um, a, a captive who is in uh, Mexico, um, what he finds, an American captive in Mexico, what, what he sort of explores is not only a, a better understanding of Mexico and its relationship to Spain, but also begins to kind of reformulate what uh, being American means in that context and begins to kind of think of this space west of the Mississippi for the first time as something that, you know, might be part of or incorporated into part of the, the federal nation. Um, and so certainly I think when you think of these spaces as less uh, sort of provincial and more sort of provisional spaces, um, I think we can definitely think about regionalism today, um, especially on a day when there are a number of um, primaries um, happening in various mm-hmm. states, um, the ways in which our you know, notions of, of what a state is, whether it's red or blue or purple, um, or, or how we understand certain populations within those states or, or localities is constantly shifting, and it's often contested by people who inhabit that space. And so that's certainly something you know, we're exploring um, at a much earlier point, but I definitely think it has sort of implications for how we continue to think about locality and regionalism in our present moment. Including sometimes it'll uh, pick people up and move them to, you know, some, sometimes people move <laughs> to, to a red state or, or a blue state because they feel more comfortable there. Um, Carrie Holt, I want to, again, bring this forward to, or, or specifically to, to Utah history. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm thinking as we're talking here about the shrinking state of Deseret, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. Brigham yeah. Young envisioned yes. <laughs> a huge swath of territory. If you look at a map of Deseret, it's, it's the, almost the entire western U.S., and then that kept shrinking and shrieking as, as the conflict between Mormon settlers and the federal government went on. Yeah, and in fact, uh, sort of my interest in region, I, I grew up here in Utah, and Utah, Utah is its own uh, unique region. Um, and as you live here, and again, anyone who lives in any region, um, there are certain strategies or certain things that you use to define a space, and, and it gets people often very anxious, especially the thought of the loss of a region or the need to protect a region or to assert a region. Um, and that kind of impulse was something that I think you can trace in a lot of the, the essays we had. And that gets to a point where something we did really strategically in the way we organized this was um, a lot of studies of regionalism tend to focus on the place, so literature about the West or literature about the South. And uh, we sort of cover all those different uh, geographic regions in the book, but we didn't want to organize it in those terms because we were trying to think about region as 
almost related to place, but also a certain set of strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the case of Utah, for instance, I think the way that people often try to, you know, describe it or define it or often place it in opposition to other spaces, you start to see how that regional language can serve as a kind of strategy that's used to accomplish other kinds of political purposes. Um, and so the way that, and particularly with um, organizing this in terms of, you know, the chartings, mappings, and counter mappings rather than Western, Southern, and, um, you know, New England literature um, sort of became a way to foreground that that focus on regionalism as a kind of uh, strategic discourse. Mm. There's some very interesting essays, and I want to jump into some specifics. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, I want to hear about Welch Indians. Edward Watts has a interesting chapter uh, here onto the section Chartings, Colonies, and uh, Countries. And uh, as we go along, we'll hear about uh, uh, Cherokee narratives. We'll hear about New Orleans. All, always interesting to talk about <laughs> New Orleans. Um, and uh, I want to talk a bit about neo-Tory sympathy. Uh, it's it's interesting that uh, I guess you know that we we think of history as set, and uh, winners write history. And so once the revolutionaries won the Revolutionary War, uh, we don't think much about the Tories anymore. But uh, there's a chapter on that as well. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. We're talking about an interesting new collection, Mapping Region in Early American Writing. We're talking with Edward Watts, professor of English at Michigan State University, Kerry Holt, associate professor of English at Utah State University, and John Funchen, assistant professor of English and American Studies at the University of Miami. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Dr. Craig Jessup and the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra's performance of J.S. Bach's St. Matthew Passion, Friday, March 25th in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Ticket information at 435-752-0026 or at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. A business leader frustrated with his organization's inability to do quality improvement recently called me and invited me to consult. Are you a specialist in our industry, was his first question. No, I said. Then how can you help, he asked. I said this, because in your workforce of 120 employees, you have 120 specialists in their area. They need better communication, better trust, and confidence that they can solve problems. I can help with that and then I will leave. Consultants come and go. Employees stay and build up often untapped expertise that is the wellspring of excellence. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're talking about a new collection, Mapping Region in Early American Writing. How did early American writers think about the spaces around them? Uh, We're talking about regions, imagined politically, economically, racially, and figuratively. And rather than uh, using regions as we normally consider them, the uh, editors here have arranged these essays as chartings, mappings, and countermappings. 
And we're going to jump into some specific, very interesting essays here. We're talking with Edward Watts, professor of English at Michigan State University, Kerry Holt, associate professor of English at Utah State University, and John Funchen. Uh, I'm informed, John, that uh, you're an associate professor of English. You're very polite not to have corrected me. Uh, associate professor of English at American Studies and American Studies at the University of Miami. Uh, so thanks to everyone for, for joining us. Let me turn to Professor Watts. You have a very interesting uh, chapter here, an, an essay on Welsh Indians and the early West. I, I didn't know there were such things. Uh, well, they neither did they. Um, okay. The story is that, <laughs> the story is that um, in the, uh, the late 12th century, a Welsh prince supposedly sailed to America and uh, landed in Mobile Bay, and the Welsh traveled around for a while before settling up the Missouri. And this legend, um, which was totally unsubstantiated, when the English wanted to colonize the New World after defeating the Spanish Armada at the end of the 16th century, Sir John Dee claimed uh, by the old legal tenet of the Doctrine of Discovery, you know, where you see somebody put down a flag and say, I claim this land in the name of somebody, that North America belonged to England because England had taken over Wales in 1280, and therefore the Welsh right to North America via Prince Madoc, who was the leader of the Welsh Indians, belonged to the, to the, belonged to the English, and they had a right to kick out the Spanish and the French, who were also set on colonizing North America at the time. <laughs> um and this went largely ignored, uh, but the English went ahead, obviously, and settled. Uh, but in the 1790s, when Americans, again, looked across the Appalachians, likewise they wanted to find a legal means of claiming this land. That is, for a republic, it wasn't enough just to take the land by the law of force. Uh, they wanted a legal premise to do otherwise would violate the principles of John Locke, one of their heroes. And the Madoc legend gave them access to the doctrine of discovery, that is, the whites, English whites, were already in the West and had been there for a long time. And that serves the purpose of really diluting, shrinking, or diminishing, or really even erasing the exclusive rights to Western lands claimed by different tribes, especially if they can show that the Welsh stayed in one place, whereas the Indians were viewed as being nomadic. And so it enabled this legal claim. At the same time, the Welsh had supposedly, and all the accounts that were coming forth uh, from Western explorers, had lost what might be considered their whiteness. They'd lost the ability to read. They'd uh, lost the ability to uh, smelt and perform a metallurgy. They lost all of the characteristics that, that made them different from the Indians, how they were... Welsh Indians in a kind of oxymoronic sort of way. So their story could be used two ways. One, to claim the land out west, but also, as I mentioned before, you had all these western settlers uh, who were in need of discipline. And the narrative could be put forth that if you didn't stay with us as part of the country, and what happened to the Welsh would soon happen to you, that is, that you would become Indian. And so if it was a cautionary tale for Western settlers, as well as justification for expansion. And there were hundreds of accounts in Wales and England, uh, poems, stories, travel accounts of running into Welsh travelers 
most of which were finally extinguished in the 1850s when the Mandan Indians, who were the last group thought to be Welsh, uh, were wiped out by smallpox. Hmm. Yeah, and very interesting. Kerry, hold this. Uh, I connect this up with what we're talking about, the state of Deseret, and, and uh, you, you talked about how, you know, a lot of times there's agendas. There are agendas uh, at play in, in how we how we map and, and chart and think about regions. Yeah, and this gets back to this idea of thinking about mapping as a kind of, you, you tell a lot of stories to define a place. And the story of the um, the Welsh Indians becomes a particularly useful story uh, to use to try to define a space and who has claim to that space. But again, it's all coming from these, um, you know kind of imagined narratives. Um, so the relationship between, I don't know, you think when you're defining a space, it's very fact-based. Um, but often, yeah, it comes from these these stories that you produce and you tell about a space in order to use it or define it in the way that you want to. And it's who defines it, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, Maybe we could jump to the, the chapter that you wrote. Um, you know, uh, how, let me, let me read the title here. Um, we, too, the people, rewriting resistance in the Cherokee Nation. And, and... What we, I guess, have gotten normally is people outside the Cherokee Nation talking about, you know, defining uh, defining the nation, defining how they think of themselves. But but you're going and I guess and looking at Cherokee writers, are you? Yeah. So when you're looking at um, sort of the debates that were surrounding Cherokee removal, um, you have sort of two very clear groups who are trying to make two different arguments about how you're going to define the space. You've got the Cherokee who say this space, this is the Cherokee nation, this particular you know, set of boundaries. And then you have the United States saying, well, no, this space belongs to the state of Georgia or, or the Georgians in particular saying that. Uh, and the United States then trying to sort of negotiate, well, who does this space belong to and how do we define? Is this space that belongs to the United States or is this space that belongs to the Cherokee? And so... Um, that instance just gives really interesting examples of the way people are, are using and manipulating language to try to lay claim to what the space is. And what's interesting about the Cherokee is, uh, in this particular instance, they quickly realized that using their own sort of uh, narratives and terms to lay claim to that space wasn't going to work. So what they did was they went back to treaties and documents written by the United States that were defining or implying that this land belonged to the Cherokee and saying, hey, look, you defined it this way. We didn't define it this way. And we're just trying to abide by your, you know, the story that you told. Um, So it becomes this really interesting um, counter narrative that's also it's a counter narrative that's also repeating the narrative it's countering. Um, so it becomes this um, really fascinating uh, account of how regions are defined. And there, I don't know if this was in your essay or just in that section. There's a newspaper, a Cherokee newspaper? Yes, the Cherokee newspaper, the Cherokee Phoenix. Um, so the Cherokee... Um, in 1823, they develop a syllabary so that they can write uh, the Cherokee language, and they produce a bilingual newspaper. And this is where a lot of the debates arguing about how we're going to say this is Cherokee land are occurring. And they'll often reprint um, U.S. documents and Cherokee documents in both English and Cherokee. So you get sort of this really uh, clear visual sense of how these narratives are talking back and forth to each other and how they're they're strategically using them to try to define this is Cherokee space while still using the language of the United States. Mm-hmm. I, I was surprised to learn there was a chart, there was a newspaper, and I guess that's a, a prejudice that's. But 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 I think I'm not alone. 
you know, uh, in in judging that society or that that culture that way. Yeah, and again, this gets at um, sort of another focus of this collection is we really wanted to look at, okay, when you start looking at regions, how does that change the way you think about print culture and what print culture looked like in the United States? And people often think that print culture in the early 19th century was, you know, centered in New England, and it involved certain, certain standard narratives about how print culture operated. And when you start to look at regions and how regional documents and regional narratives were circulating, it starts to dig up some other forms of print culture that um, we're sort of buried in that history. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking about an interesting new collection. It's called Mapping Region in Early American Writing. We're talking with Edward Watts, who's professor of English at Michigan State University, uh, Carrie Holt, associate professor of English at Utah State University, and John Funchen, associate professor of English and American Studies at the University of Miami. You can join the conversation at upraccess at gmail.com if uh, you would like. Before I turn back to John Funchen, I want to turn to uh, Professor Watts, uh, Edward Watts, um, I learned this from the book. You mentioned this earlier in the program, and I think maybe I'm not alone in being ignorant of this. You said that Thomas Jefferson imagined the continent filling out maybe not with one nation. Maybe it would be, in his mind, it would be different nations. Well, one of the most famous biographies of Jefferson is the American Sphinx. He was always likely to do say one thing and then do another and then turn around and do just the reverse. And so just as a statement like you know, the title of our introduction, Bordering Establishment, suggests mapping, uh, he'd also in 1784 drawn up a land ordinance, uh, which imagines the land between the Appalachians and the Mississippi as a series of distinct squares, uh, kind of a macro version of how counties are usually planned out. And so, you know, Jefferson was always exploring different possibilities and thinking about how different spaces, different peoples might work together. And why well, was why why did he think under under the version when he was thinking about it as maybe different nation states, why was he thinking that? Well to think about that, you need to think about how he thought about what a republic was or a democracy was. And again, I think this, this very much, as Jana suggested, ties into our current political moment as well. In common sense, Thomas Paine writes that really the ideal democracy is about the number of people you can fit under a tree to discuss things and then take a vote. All right, so the idea of extending a republic, not just from Maine to Georgia, which, remember, proved untenable. That failed, right, with the coming civil war and all the compromises along the way. But then expanding a republic, and not just the political structure, but the economic, social, gendered, and race hierarchies that go along with the republic, extending that over the course of hundreds and even thousands of millions of square miles, at least, made people in the early republic very nervous. There were a lot of people who didn't want the Louisiana Purchase, who were nervous about these western spaces, and how they would destabilize the country they just barely managed to secure from the British. And so to imagine other republics out there, so long as those republics were speaking English and were allies, and even, say, James Fenimore Cooper lays this out in the introduction to his novel The Prairie, which is set all the way out in Nebraska, so long as we can all get along, I think the idea of, of republics next to each other uh, was, was compatible with earlier republic thinking. 
The trouble is, and this is why regionalism is only thought of so much later, is that regionalism gets mixed in with an old term called section. And section is what led to the separate nationalism of the Confederacy. And so regionalism was kind of, had to be set aside and put in the past, as Kerry said, or Sean said, after the Civil War and sanitized. But I think back then the idea that multiple republics could live next to each other in peace uh, wasn't yet disproven. Mm -hmm. And so Jefferson was open to it. And as you as you said, John said earlier, we we uh, if we bring this forward, the electoral college kind of encourages us to think of you know separate separate republics almost. We we think of red states and blue states, and we in our minds we we kind of separate everything out. I don't well, know. The old Republican discipline. I don't mean I don't mean big R Republican Party, but the small R Republican disciplining of the process is still there. In that you have the Western states as they get larger and larger. The proportional representation, you know, we all have two senators, and the idea was there was that a tiny little state like Rhode Island or Delaware would have, at the most important level, the same reputation, the same amount of power as, you know, Utah or California. They all have just two senators. They didn't trust the Westerners <laughs> to mm. have proportional power. Yeah. Uh, let me turn to John Funchen. Um, in, in, uh, in the second section of the book, that I was fascinated by uh, Chapter 7, which talks about one of the subheadings of the of the chapter, neo-Tory sympathy. And th- there's another case where we, we don't tend to think about the Tories anymore. After, after the revolutionaries won the war, the, the Tories kind of disappear in, in, from the kind of the narrative we all have in our heads. Yeah, that is, um, yeah, Duncan Faraday's really wonderful contribution to the collection. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that to me well, sort of was, was striking about his chapter and what I sort of enjoyed um, when I was sort of editing this section is the way he opens that essay very vividly with Washington returning to New York shortly after the liberation of uh, Manhattan and uh, he's sort of shocked by the sort of the, the, the vividness of, of buildings that are smoldering in, in suspicious fires as the, the British were leaving, as well as the waterways of New York clogged uh, with the bodies of 18,000 uh, prisoners of, of war, American prisoners of war. And so, uh, you know, again, I think that is a good example of how um, a number of the contributors sort of get us to rethink some of these kind of intuitive moments uh, or things that we take for granted in terms of the unfolding of, of U.S. history and literary history, uh, you know, this uh, the kind of secession of, or, or the retreat rather, of, of the British was was one that you know was certainly um, marred by the ravages of war. Um, but he uses that um, anecdote to sort of open up a discussion about what you sort of just alluded to, this notion that there were a number of Tories, uh, loyalists uh, in New York, uh, and they remained uh, sort of culturally and politically uh, aligned in that fashion. Um, And as a result, uh, the state of New York uh, and, and, and Duncan is interested in a sort of New York regionalism uh, in, in, in relation to these neo-Tory sympathies in, in the early 19th century. But the state of New York tried to pass a number of laws that would uh, sort of economically compensate uh, Patriots, people who were loyal to the American cause, um, for the losses they suffered during the um, during the revolution, um, but 
Washington himself, as well as Alexander Hamilton, um, feared that these kinds of actions would really um, sort of undermine uh, the attempts they were making to sort of uh, amend uh, the kind of conflicts that had, had percolated to the top surface during the, uh, during the Revolutionary War, and they really wanted to, to drive uh, the movement towards consensus. And so there were a number of ways in which even as Washington and Hamilton, and Washington in particular, are sort of publicly praising uh, New York patriots, um, behind the scenes, they're trying to sort of undermine some of these efforts because they see them as kind of aggressive acts toward um, the Tory population in New York. And, and so one of the things that Duncan then looks at is a number of works of literature, actually, which um, sort of unapologetically and very transparently uh, think of New York as this place still defined in many respects by Tory sympathies. And um, what's really fascinating about that is the way in which that reading of early American literary history sort of cuts against some of our conventional understandings of the early 19th century literary history, where we think of a lot of literature sort of working towards um, the development of a national literary culture. And certainly a number of, of authors like Charles Brockton Brown and, and, and James Fenimore Cooper sort of outwardly expressed the desire to create a national literary culture. But um, what Duncan is sort of focus narrowing in on is this period of, you know, roughly from 1800 to 1820, where with New York is a kind of important example where you had a number of um, literary works that clung to uh, very kinds of local or, um, you know, very local sort of sorts of affiliations and, and, and local affiliations, or in this case, sort of tor- neo-Tory sympathies that really, uh, you know, undermined and to, to many, in many respects, uh, the attempt to forge a kind of national culture. Uh, and so that's sort of what, what Duncan is getting at in, in that really terrific um, chapter. And I think, you know, his work in, in that regard is sort of representative of, of, of the work of the collection as a whole. Before we go to break, uh, turn to Kerry Holt for this, this question. There's a lot of pressure, isn't there? We, we want to, there's pressure in that era that, uh, that John Funcham was talking about to form a national cohesion through national literature, national culture. Your book, the book that uh, the three of you have uh, put together here, is I guess one of the messages is it's important to look for voices that are pressing back against that that uh, pressure to to form a cohesive uh, uh, culture. What what's the importance there? What why should we be doing that? The importance there, well, and people often think of region as like a subcategory to mm-hmm. the nation. So nation is first, regions are second. And we're really trying to show that regions are sometimes, that there's a, a much closer relationship there, and that you need to pay attention to them because they do play an important role in actually defining and determining national issues. And also, when you start to look closely at regions, you start to find voices that often get left out of the national narratives. So our collection has a lot of... Um, pieces that look at uh, representation of region by uh, female uh, writers, which was in Duncan's piece, or African-American writers, Native American writers. Um, So it also becomes a place where you can find voices that often get overwritten or uh, left out of those larger national stories. Mm -hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have more. Uh, The book is Mapping Region in Early American Writing, and uh, we'll hear some very interesting uh, stories uh, coming up. I'll uh, I will ask as we uh, come along here in the next segment uh, about early American nature writing. Uh, It's in the uh, section I think that Edward Watts put together. Um, At the very end of the book, John Funchen looks forward, uh, takes us to New Orleans. And uh, Carrie Holt maybe can tell us about African-American literature of the gold rush that we we heard about. It's very interesting uh, essays here. Uh, We're talking about uh, this book 
A mapping region in early American writing with Edward Watts from Michigan State University, Carrie Holt from USU, and John Funchen from University of Miami. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and USU Partners in Business. March 17th Leadership Conference, creating an opportunity for business leaders to bridge the gap between theory and performance practice since 1976. More about this opportunity at partners.usu.edu. Utah's water quality. What do we know about ways to keep our watersheds safe and improve the quality of this important resource? Utah Public Radio joins Logan City during the Green Futures Learning Series Wednesday, March 16th at Logan City Hall. Listen and learn about water conservation and then let UPR know what you plan to do to keep our water clean by becoming a Utah Public Insight Network source. Join us Wednesday evening in Logan. On the next Radio Lab. Going to Galapagos is like going to Mecca. It's the place that taught us about evolution. Green mangroves, black flower flows, pink flamingos. Wow. Now a harbinger for the end of nature. We're radically remaking the world. That forest was 100% gone. And how far are we willing to go to save it? We're God. We might as well get good at it. Galapagos on the next Radio Lab. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are talking about a new collection. It's called Mapping Region in America, Early American Writing. And we're talking with John Funchen, Associate Professor of English at Amer- and American Studies at the University of Miami. Carrie Holt, Associate Professor of English at Utah State University. And Edward Watts, Professor of English at Michigan State University. We've reached our last uh, segment with them uh, today, spending the hour with them. I want to turn uh, to Professor Watts uh, first again. Um, there is a very interesting essay by uh, William Lombardi, in the first section of the book, about early American nature writing. What's, uh, what's Professor Lombardi talking about there? I think, um, excuse me, what he's talking about is how nature writing uh, has to do with defining region by uh, working uh, what would otherwise be alien taxonomies, ways of organizing our knowledge about nature, into receive categories into things that we already know so that we chart, so to speak, uh, those regions into the nation by seeing that their nature um, closely resembles other places that we know. And so um, uh, Mr. Lombardi's essay is uh, thinking about the West and thinking about how this placement of naturalism was um, what he calls contributes to a socially constructed, a material and a socially constructed U.S. West. It makes it knowable. It makes it familiar. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and I think we, you know, bringing that forward, we we constantly do that, don't we? We take what's familiar to us and we try to overlay that on, on what's new. Yeah, to the extent that we keep introducing alien species and, and throwing things up that way mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah, certainly true. Uh, Carrie Holt, I want to uh, want to have you talk a little bit about uh, this chapter on tribal Christianity. 
Yeah, so that's another um, essay that's dealing with this idea of nature writing, and it's also looking at it from uh, a Native American writer, uh, William Apis, and he was trying to define the regional space um, of the wilderness in New England, uh, but in terms that were an interesting mix of sort of Native American spirituality, but he was also... um, very involved with the Methodist Church. And so he, um, uh, um, in that chapter, it's talking a lot about how it's defining this space as both wilderness, but also this very uh, spiritual, but in the realm of what people often assume to be Anglo-American forms of Christianity. Um, So that's where we get sort of an interesting overlay of people have these assumptions about how, you know, Native American writers are going to define the wilderness. Um, And he gives some very interesting ways of sort of rethinking and making that space a lot more complicated and still wanting to preserve it as a space of wilderness. It's a region that's not defined by... Uh, permanent settlement there or, or land development, but a space for um, a particular kind of spiritual experience. There's another example of um, how the usual narrative isn't complete, right? Yes. So that's fascinating. Native American writers and how they describe wilderness. Yes. Expand on that if you would. Um, and well, Native Americans occupy an interesting place just in regional writing because um, people often sort of group. Native American writing all together is sort of this one thing. And it's not often associated with discussions about region, which is unusual considering a lot of Native American writing is talking about spaces and particularly um, outdoor or, um, you know, non-urban spaces. And that that becomes particularly linked to definitions of sort of community identity. Uh, And again, these issues of boundary and how you're going to define and lay claim to a particular kind of space. Um, And again, we often have assumptions that Native Americans define wild, unsettled spaces. Um, And that's something that's going on in that chapter. But again, he's also trying to define it using the terms of um, sort of Methodism as a way to give a somewhat unusual um, representation of this space of the wilderness that isn't, it's both tied to Native American spiritual beliefs that are don't have connection to Anglo-American traditions, uh, but at the same time is still incorporating them. So you see these more fluid relationships rather than these strict boundaries between cultures. Mm. John Funchen, uh, I want to have you talk a bit about your postscript. Uh, I think you're looking to the future here. You're looking forward. Uh, it's titled Creole Adjudication, Governing New Orleans and Regional Provisionality in, in the Long 19th uh, Century. New Orleans always fascinating to, to talk about. What are you talking about here? Yeah, so this postscript um, was sort of designed to revisit um, sort of where the collection took off from, which was, um, you know, as has been mentioned now a couple of different times, uh, we were interested in sort of pushing back against this close association between, at least within 19th century American literary studies, what we think of as regionalism in the late 19th century and, and thinking about it in an earlier moment. Um, so the task of the postscript in some sense was to revisit that late 19th century moment and rethink the way late 19th century regionalism was shaped by actually these earlier instances of regionalism explored by the other contributors to the collection. Uh, and so I look at a novel by George Washington Cable called The Grandissimes, which is published in 1880, but is an historical novel about uh, the moment in which uh, Louisiana is uh, you know, turned over to um, the United States. Uh, that is, it ceases to be a French territory. And uh, in doing that, what's kind of interesting is the way in which um, 
Cable uses that earlier moment to think about his own moment in the 1880s, which is a moment that is sort of on the uh, the tail end of the, the Reconstruction era, the era in which uh, you know the, the federal government essentially occupied the South as, as well as um, Louisiana and, and New Orleans. And um, to kind of think about that moment by revisiting this moment where, you know, the, again, the federal government was wresting control of New Orleans from a different, uh, you know, a different power, um, in this case, France. But um, in doing so, uh, what I explore is uh, New Orleans and uh, Louisiana's sort of unique cultural and legal history. And in that um, endeavor, uh, this is one of those moments where uh, I sort of attempt to also kind of divorce the, the, these two concepts of section and region that um, Ned, um, Ned Watts mentioned earlier. Um, you know, even at this 1880s moment, at a moment that is still dealing with the aftermath of sectional nationalism um, or Confederate nationalism, Cable is thinking about Louisiana's own unique regional state history. And it's a a history um, that is as much cultural as as it is legal, because while most of the United States operates within the common law tradition, which is a tradition that goes back to Britain, uh, Louisiana uniquely, and and that's true even to this day, is indebted to the the continental European tradition of the civil law, which operates very differently. I don't need to get into the intricacies of that, but what's interesting is that Cable sort of sees this legal drama playing out in the early 19th century, and it's very clear that uh, this drama, which surrounds not only the um, sort of acquisition or inheritance of property, but also explores the racial tensions in uh, in New Orleans, um, it implicitly, one of the things that Cable is thinking about is how to kind of address as uh, someone who was very attuned uh, to the racial cha- the challenges of, of, of New Orleans and Louisiana in the late 19th century, uh, the way in which he thinks about that earlier regional moment as potentially offering some solutions or ways of dealing with the conflicts in New Orleans by kind of drawing on this old uh, Louisiana sort of legal and cultural tradition that has ties to Spain and France more so than it does um, to Britain, but also ties to the Caribbean as as well. Uh, and, and so for me, that not only opens up the way in which this collection gets us to rethink late 19th century regionalism, but also then gets us thinking about more contemporary, uh, you know, to kind of return to that as well, kind of contemporary representations of regions. And, and so I, I very briefly at the end of that postscript talk about some of the recent sort of TV series like David Simon's Treme. Um, or the first season of True Detective, which I think also, in, in a very kind of George Washington Cable way, I think, explore um, the kind of regional dynamics and local dynamics of, of New Orleans and Louisiana. And, and, and something I think that is very striking about this sort of golden age of television is just how much uh, regionalism kind of pervades these shows, whether it's um, the shows I just mentioned or Justified, which is set in Kentucky, or Burn Notice, which was this show set in Miami. Um, and, uh, and so I think you know, there are ways in which this collection, I think, definitely speaks still to kind of certain contemporary cultural productions within the world of, of, of television. And, and I make that kind of gesture at the very end of the postscript. Interesting. Though, that, that does bring it up to today. Uh, Carrie Hold, I was, uh, I make connections between uh, Louisiana and, and Utah in terms of, you know, Louisiana's in some ways not like the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Utah also um, and if we bring it forward to uh, today, uh, to, to popular media, I think a lot of people in Utah would roll their eyes that uh, it's, it's sister wives and it's polygamy shows that, you know, <laughs> that kind of <laughs> kind of are, are the distinguished, you know, uh, which perpetuates some stereotypes. And 
Which, and we often have, um, I often have these conversations uh, in class when I'm trying to talk about region and getting students to try to think about what region is, what region does. And yeah, this this odd tension between wanting to define yourself as different and unique, but then also wanting to say, well, no, actually, we're that doesn't define us, like that you run into problems sometimes, um, that sort of regionalism can sort of double back on itself mm -hmm. or go away from the way you want to intend to use it um, can sometimes come back to haunt you, yeah. which is one of the reasons it's so interesting. You'd like to control it, I guess, so, but you can't. It's, you know, it's just it's a, it's a thing of its own. Yes. And you start producing these stories and they start defining spaces. And then next thing you know, you don't like the spaces they've defined. and But, the, you know, those stories are out there. So. Mm -hmm. Just have a couple minutes left. Uh, I'll give the last word to uh, Edward Watts, Professor Watts. Uh, we, we've been talking about, of course, the collection mapping region, early American writing. What's what's the takeaway? What what do you hope people take away from from this collection? What's the takeaway? Well, I think a lot of the things that just that we've been talking about um, the diversification of early American studies, uh, the idea that uh, these absorption of different places and a kind of manifest destiny are. Winning of the West, to use Theodore Roosevelt's phrase, unfolded in a smooth, monolithic pattern. I think it's reminding people that they do still live in regions. You know, one of the things that happened after the Civil War, and Gertrude Stein said that the event of the first modern nation, is the search catalog popped up in everybody's mailbox right away. And the kind of homogenization that we get with, you know, enormous capitalist ventures like that standardization, industrialization, but that we do have, still have place-specific things, not just in food or, or topography, but there are different cultures. And to get Americans aware of thinking about where they are at any given moment, uh, I think it's really important. You know, even as they stop using maps and everything's on GPS these days, knowing where different lines are, knowing how permeable those are, I teach a big class, and one of the first things on, on Michigan, one of the first things we start doing is talking about the classroom is literally right next to a river. I say, Where, where's this water going? And they get them to think about things that Americans used to think about all the time and how that still defines space. Yeah, very, very interesting. Good place to, to end the conversation. Uh, we've been talking about uh, new collections called Mapping Region in Early American Writing. Uh, and our guests have been Edward Watts, professor of English at Michigan State University. Professor Watts, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Carrie Holt has joined us in studio, associate professor of English at Utah State University. Thank you. Thanks. This has been great. And John Funchen, associate professor of English and American Studies at University of Miami. Thank you. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. And uh, join us tomorrow. We're going to uh, reach back into the archives. We'll uh, bring forward a program uh, from a few months ago, uh, a biography of Frank Sinatra. We'll learn about old blue eyes, and we'll hear some music. And on Thursday, we're going to talk about the uh, current political situation and with caucuses coming to Utah and uh, possibly a Republican debate. On Monday, we'll talk with political commentators uh, Frank Pignanelli and LeVar Webb. Hope you join us there. Thanks for listening today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn how historic obstacles to travel on Utah's Green River are now considered opportunities for adventure. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. 
We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Fast waters, deadly rapids, high cliff walls, and an unknown course have long been obstacles that limited human activity on Utah's Green River. The brave souls who first floated this river did so for many reasons, money, science, and sometimes just for fun. The first people known to have traveled down the Green were the trappers who accompanied William Ashley in his search for beaver. In 1825, Ashley and his men floated the Green in bull boats made from buffalo hide. Used to transport pelts on smaller streams, bull boats were hardly suited to the rapids and perils of a major river. Yet the group managed 200 thrilling miles before pulling out at the Uinta Basin. Forty-four years later, the Transcontinental Railroad spanned the nation, but the canyons of the Green River were still a blank spot on the map of the West. In 1869, John Wesley Powell set out to rectify that by conducting a scientific expedition in a region that others thought impassable. Within the first two weeks, Powell and his crew wrecked one of their boats and lost most of their provisions. One crewman left at the first opportunity, saying, I have had more excitement than a man deserves in a lifetime. The group scouted rapids and often portaged or lined their boats for nearly a thousand miles. By the time Bus Hatch began running the Green River in 1929, he had access to maps and better boat designs. Curious about what lay upstream from his vernal home, Bus went exploring for fun. His enthusiasm for river running spread, and soon people were asking to come along. A business was born. By the 1950s, the company was bringing hundreds of clients downriver to experience the joy of running those same rapids that had obstructed Ashley and Powell. Today's commercial river running industry started with Bus Hatch's family business, which helped transform the obstacles of the Green River into opportunities for modern adventure. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Uinta County Heritage Museum. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Banfrank. I'm Jeremy Hobson. We'll continue our broadcast from Miami for the Florida primary and hear about an environmental project with bipartisan support to save the Everglades. We have built one bridge about a mile long that allows that passage of more water and it's already having positive environmental benefits in the park. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Stay tuned for Radio Lab coming now.